morning. Two parts, there's excitement and there's nerves. They always seem to mix when you, when you get up behind the pulpit. Can I open in prayer? And, um, but I'd like you all to really pray with me. Um, there's a few things. Pastor mentioned one thing when he, when he looked at uh, the Gospel of John, and that is that uh, often our spiritual eyes are closed. And I'm going to be reading from the book of Hebrews today, which is particularly a very spiritual book. It brings to light and brings to reality a lot of the things in the law, a lot of the things in the Old Testament were pictures of what Jesus Christ had actually fulfilled for us in the heavenlies. And we saw that very picture with Jesus Christ saying, I'll build it in three days, and he was speaking of the temple of his body. And incidentally, that's very much what we're going to be speaking about tonight, today. So I do pray that one of the prayers is that we will have our spiritual eyes opened. The message is going to be for Christians, for those that think they are Christians, and for those that aren't Christians. Pretty sure I've covered everyone. So let's, uh, let's pray. Father God, I just ask you, dear Lord, to, um, to be a part of this message today as you are indeed a part of this service already we've seen. I ask you, dear Father, that you will open our eyes, eyes to see, to see the wonderful truth of your word, that you will anoint our eyes with eyes of that we may indeed see. Father, I pray, dear God, that our hearts would be open to receive the wonderful words of life that you have given us and that you will give us through this message. I pray, dear God, that you'll be with me as I preach this sermon. And I pray, dear God, that though um, we are imperfect in many ways, dear Lord, that you will bring those wonderful words to reality and to the fore in our own lives. Father, I ask you to be with us now as, uh, as we teach and your word goes forth. In Jesus' name, amen. You can turn your Bibles to Hebrews, book of Hebrews, chapter 7. We're going to be taking a verse today, and this particular verse in chapter 7, we're going to basically dismember. We're going to look at it carefully and then put it back together again and have a look at the context. And there's a number of things that I'm going to outline through. Um, incidentally, there is an outline at the back that if uh, there's only about 10 or so that I, that I printed off, and it's just a one-page thing. But um, it's worth, worth having a look at to just, to just uh, remember some of the points of the message. It's verse 25. Verse 25 in Hebrews chapter 7. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. I'm going to be leaving it as... Um, we're going to be going through most of the chapter in Hebrew, so I'm not going to read it all now. But, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost, that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Draws a number of questions that we need to be able to consider deeply with this message. The first is, who is he that is able to save to the uttermost. Well, it doesn't take long before you get through this, just this chapter alone that you recognise it's our Lord Jesus Christ. But before we try and just assume that, we need to have a look at who is he that is able to save to the uttermost. It's important to know who he is. 
Because if you don't know who he is that is able to save to the uttermost, you can very well be deceived in thinking another is. A few weeks ago we had um, Brother Alan mention about the Chronicles of Narnia. In the Chronicles of Narnia, they know Aslan. They recognise Aslan as a lion. But they don't know him. They don't really know who he is. So they have a just fear in another lion that may indeed devour them. If they haven't got the right lion, then this one could be very dangerous. And what's interesting is that we actually have that in the scriptures as well. We have in Revelation 5.5 that we have a lion of the tribe of Judah and he and he alone is able to, to open the books and unleash the seals thereof. Okay? But we also have in 1 Peter uh, chapter 5, verse 8, that we are to beware of another lion. And we we'll just want to turn over there for a second. So I've got the verse right and in context. So it's 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Peter the Apostle warns us and he says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. We have to be sure that the one that we are looking at is indeed the one that is able to save to the uttermost. Um, Pastor Frank's also been preaching on Revelation for the last five years and um, we notice that in the book of Revelation there is an antichrist. Antichrist, you understand, is not necessarily the word is against Christ, though he is against Christ. It is instead of Christ. He stands in the stead of the one that is able to save to the uttermost. So knowing who this one that is able to save to the uttermost is, is incredibly important. So we need to look at it in context. The word is he. He is a pronoun, we all understand. It's also masculine and it's also singular. So that already takes away any other. It can't be a she and it can't be a them or a they. It has to be a masculine, it has to be singular. It's a pronoun and it often refers to a noun that is before in the verse. So we'll look back a little bit further if you're back in Hebrews chapter 7. And it goes in verse 24, it says, But this man, because he continueth ever... Okay, so we're still, still in the pronoun stage. Okay, and we go back to 23 and it says, And they truly were many priests. Well, we already can write that off because that's in the plural, so it can't be a they. Verse 22, however, says, By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. Okay, here we have the noun. Here we have Jesus that is made a surety of a better testament. And we'll have a look at that in context. And it says, By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament, and they truly were many priests, because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood, wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost. But let's not stop there. Go back a little bit further and have a look at verse 14. And we see something else that brings this passage into a better light. And it says, For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. What we see here is a recognition that it's our Lord. Now we know our Lord is Jesus Christ. We also know that he came out of Judah. He was of the, the line of David, the royal line of David in Judah. But it says something else here which is interesting, and that is about a priesthood 
Jesus Christ as a priesthood. Now we can go back a little bit further again, if you don't mind. If we go back, turn the page over to Hebrews chapter 6. And we see something else here that's really interesting. And it speaks about this, our Lord. And it says, Whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made an high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So now what we have is not just that Jesus is a priest, he is a high priest. But he's not just a high priest, he is a high priest that stems of another order, the order of Melchizedek. But you know, when you look at the book of Hebrews, one of the things that you find that's incredible is that the entire book is about the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nowhere where you can go in this book where you don't actually find that the whole thing is about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about him um, that, uh, that ever liveth for us. I'll get back to my other note, which I had the start of it. And we have Jesus in here as... Um, in Hebrews 7.11, it says... Well, hang on. I've lost my note. Please bear with me. Ah, here we go. Sorry. My apologies. Here it is. I numbered them as well. And I still managed to lose my note. It's fantastic. Okay. So we can go back all the way through the book of Hebrews. We see that he is the heir of all things in verse 1, in chapter 1, verse 2. He's better than the angels in chapter 1, verse 4. He's a provider of so great a salvation in chapter 2, 3. Made a merciful and high priest in 2, 17. He is the apostle in chapter 3, 1. Incidentally, this is the only time in the Bible that you're going to find apostle, capital A. 79 times it's in scripture. 79 times it's in the New Testament. Only once it's referred to with the capital A. Jesus Christ is the apostle. He is worthy of more glory than Moses in 3.3. A great high priest in 4.14. A priest after the order of Melchizedek in 5.7. The author of eternal salvation in 5.9. A more excellent ministry in 8.6. And so on. It goes on. We know that wherefore he refers to Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. There's another identity that we want to be able to consider also. And it's, who's them? These have an incredible privilege, and that is that they are saved to the uttermost. And I'll tell you, that's who I want to be counted in their number. Who, who is they? Who is them that are saved to the uttermost? We're here for he is able also to save them to the uttermost. Now, to the uttermost is to the uttermost. I, I don't think a greater adjective God could have used in Scripture. Um, we have, if you're looking at synonyms for the uttermost, it's to the extreme, to the furthest, to the furthermost, the outermost, the remotest, the utmost. It can also refer to complete, whole, entire, perfect. If you're referring to time, it's always forever end to the very end the uttermost I looked up the antonym for it you know what it is temporary interesting interesting Jesus Christ is able to save them to the uttermost okay so now who is them who is them now we want to consider a couple of things with this incredible word them and we want to also consider the reality of 
Just, not just the nature of the word them, but in the context by him. Because what you're going to find is that the them, those that are saved to the uttermost, is incredibly broad, yet specific. We see them as broad. It encapsulates all. But who are they? Well, it is them that come unto God. All them that come unto God are the ones that are going to be saved to the uttermost. Pretty simple, isn't it? It's right in the text, right in front of our eyes. Who is them that are saved to the uttermost? All them that come unto God. Broad. It's incredibly broad. There's none that is outside this scope. It is available to everybody. There is nobody that is, ex that is excluded in this. Not the worst of sinners. And not the most holy of people, to a degree. To a degree. But even the worst of sinners can come unto God and can be saved to the uttermost. If you're a Christian that has been going to churches for the last 30 years, you can also be saved to the uttermost. You can profess Christ with your mouth, but what we're talking about here is a conversion of the heart. We're talking about a change of the heart. Those are true Christians, indeed. But if you are one of those that has been attending and has watched other Christians make a fool of themselves, you too can be saved and can come to God and be saved to the uttermost. Those that think that they're too sinful. My mother was one of those. Thinking that God couldn't be willing to accept her. No, no, not true, not true. It says here that he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God. We need to come unto God in order to be saved to the uttermost. But notice something else. It's also specific. As much as it is broad. By him. Words clearly. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. There is no other way unto God but by him him no man can come to the father but by me and it is only through jesus christ and jesus christ alone that you can be saved to the uttermost so if you want to be able to establish the identity of both these two one is the one that is able to save to the uttermost we recognize is jesus christ and jesus christ alone but those that are able to be saved to the uttermost is all them that come unto God by him. So if you can come unto God by Jesus Christ, you can be saved to the uttermost. Get in any other way and the Bible says you're a thief and a robber. You have no place there. There is one God and that is who we worship and that is who we hold to with all our heart and soul. But we must come to him aright and it is by him that is able to save to the uttermost. That is the only way. What else does this tell us? This incredible verse says that it gives us also the method. It tells us the way. It gives us, we have already worked out the identity. We've worked out the purpose. What are they saved to? What are you saved to? You're saved unto God. That is what you're saved to. 
we come unto God. Utmost that come unto God. And then the scripture says, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. There's a number of things that can be drawn out there. What I want to do before we get into that is I want to have a look at chapter 7. And just we're just going to read through it really quickly to get a bit of a broad sweep and understanding the context. But we're actually going to start at verse 20 of chapter 6. Verse 20 of chapter 6. It says, Whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth the priest continually. This is an incredible character, an incredible character. And there's been heaps of speculation on who this one is. But the Bible says he's made like unto the Son of God. And we'll leave it there. He is, a, he is, he has not, he is without father, without mother. It doesn't say that they don't know who his father is. It doesn't say that they don't know who his mother is. It says it is without father and without mother. It says without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of Man, Son of God, sorry, and abideth the priest continually. Verse 4, Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. Recognize who Abraham is. Abraham is the beginning of the Hebrew people. He is a Gentile. He is a Gentile called out of the Ur of the Chaldees. This is the calling of Abraham, and Abraham has now come in, and he's given a tenth of the spoils. Verse 5, And verily they that are of the sons of Levi, who also, uh, sorry, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises and without all contradiction the less is blessed of the better and here men that die receive tithes but there he receiveth them of whom it is witness that he liveth and as I may say so as as I may so say Levi also who receiveth tithes paid tithes in Abraham for he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek Met him. Remember that Levi was one of the tribes that actually came out of Jacob. Jacob was one of the sons. He was the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Okay, so Levi was ordained as the priesthood, and that was when the temple was was made, the tabernacle. Sorry, okay, when they came out of out in the Exodus. Verse 11, incredible. And, and please, from here on, please pay attention because there is some incredible passages here that you must be able to comprehend. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, there is also of necessity... 
There is, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. Recognise what that's saying. That's pretty incredible. We've got something that's perceived to be perfect and yet here the scripture says, well, if it was perfect, what further need was there that another priest should rise? Continue on verse 13. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe of which man, which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood. Remember, it was Moses that actually provided the law. The law was given to Moses and then given unto the people. The Levitical priesthood ordained of God was actually instituted by Moses. Moses is part of the line of Levi. His brother Aaron was the one that was the first effective high priest, other than Melchizedek, of course. And he was the one that everybody was to, um, was to be you know, giving unto, and he was the one that was the high priest at that time. Verse 15, sorry, verse 16. Who was made, this is speaking of, um, sorry, where was I? 13, 14, concerning priesthood, 15. And, is yet far more, and it is yet far more evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest who was made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifieth, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now incredibly, look at this next one. It says, there is, for there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before, for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did by the which we draw nigh unto God. We draw nigh unto God by the bringing in of the better hope. The better hope was Jesus Christ. The one here that it says he is able to save them to the uttermost. Verse 20. And inasmuch as not without an oath he was made priest. For those priests were made without an oath. But this with an oath by him that said unto him the Lord swear and will not repent. Thou art a priest after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. Understanding who these people are, these are the high priests that were instituted. They were to go to make reconciliation. Actually, they were to, to effectively be um, intercessors on behalf of the people to God. These high priests were ordained to go into the tabernacle, into the Holy of Holies, only once a year. They made sacrifice for their own sins first recognised. They first had to be cleansed because nobody can enter the Holy of Holies without being holy themselves. And only a sacrifice that was pleasing to God would be ordained for these men to be able to enter into the Holy of Holies. And it was only once a year that they were able or permitted to do this and they were to intercede for the people. Recognise something here. There's two things to think of. Number one, it refers to their need for intercession in the first place. Now, that thought carries on here. That thought carries on here. For if Jesus Christ ever liveth to make intercession for us, there is a need of intercession. Recognise and understand I'm not speaking of justification. I'm speaking about the Lord ever liveth to make intercession for us as our high priest. There is a need for the intercession of these high priests. 
At first they were justified, they needed to be justified, there needed to be a sacrifice given. And then these men were to be able to offer that intercession before the Lord once a year. But there's a problem here because, see, they couldn't continue. You couldn't just have one, had to be many. Now think, this was 1,500 years ago. That's a few high priests. That's a few high priests that have gone by the by. But this man, whoever liveth to make intercession for us. So let's continue on. And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. The picture in the Old Testament with the old high priests was a foreshadowing of the new with the new high priest that ever liveth. The death of these high priests, perpetual death of these high priests, were, was not a picture of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the surety of a better testament. Remember, he is the one that ever liveth to make intercession. So, but this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore he, our text, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins, and then for the people's. For this he did once, when he offered up himself. Remember, a body thou hast prepared me. I come to do thy will, O God. It's only a body, and it was Jesus Christ himself that provided that sacrifice for your justification, for your justification. But now, after that body has been prepared, died, bled, buried, and risen, we now have a high priest that ever liveth to make intercession for us. Guys, if you're seeking justification, you'll find it at the foot of the cross. But if you're seeking intercession unto God, intercession unto God, you'll find it with our high priest, whoever liveth to make intercession for us. See, by the death of Christ, we are justified to life. By the intercession of Christ, we are preserved to glory. One of the things that's, um, that's heartbreaking is that there are, uh, there are so many people that um, think for some reason the salvation that we have, we're saved once we're justified and then after that it's up to us. We need to somehow keep it. We need to somehow be holy in order to acquire that which Christ has already freely done for us. There's nothing more heartbreaking and there's nothing more destroying for the soul of man and particularly for the gospel. Jesus Christ is able to save to the uttermost. We are preserved unto glory. That particular passage here does not necessarily refer to our initial salvation, though that can certainly be encompassed in the, in the text. But it refers to our preservation. And there is so many in scripture that we could understand. We just read, if therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek? What, what, what need was there? And we see that there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. Why? Because the law made nothing perfect. 
We're talking about perfection. You cannot be with the Lord unless you are perfect. Be thou perfect, for your Father in heaven is perfect. How are you going to be perfect exactly? How? By the law? Or by the hearing of faith? Paul's speaking to the Galatians. He says, oh, you foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. This would I learn of you, he says. Received you the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? We've got Romans that tells us this. We've got Galatians that tells us this. We have Hebrews that tells us this. Three incredible books that incredibly also seem to fall into this little trilogy of truth with respect to this. I want you to remember something. What, what does the Bible say in John? He says, um, remember that passage? He says, I, funnily, I can remember the words, but I can't remember the verse. Um, remember when he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Oh, and no man is able to take them out of my hand and no man is able to take them out of my hand. Then he says, my father which gave them me. So here we have, we have, we have, Jesus Christ holding you in this hand, right? just as a picture. Okay, They shall never perish. No man is able to take them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all. And no man is able to take them out of my Father's hand. You see how you're held? Do you see how tightly you're held? And yet there are those that think God's going to let go. If we want to let go, God's going to let go. And Pastor Frank had this wonderful picture that he gave to me a few weeks ago when he was discussing this with somebody. And it was as if, if you can imagine a father holding the hand of his child, crossing a busy intersection. Can I ask you a question? Who's going to hold tighter? Who's going to hold tighter? Oh, but if the child wants to let go and run, the loving father will let him. Yes? Does that make sense to you? Oh, man. You know... And yet that's what these people, people that believe this, people that think somehow I need to be saved by my own work, a work which didn't give me salvation to begin with, is now going to hold me unto that end. Turn to Galatians chapter 2 verse 9. Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, we're going to have a look at verse 19. And the scriptures say, specifically Paul the Apostle says, For I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. You have to be dead to the law in order to live unto God. Okay? Go on. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Point three, next verse, vitally important for those that think that they are to attain it and maintain it themselves. The apostle says, I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead 
in vain. Makes sense to you? Does it make sense that if righteousness can somehow come to the, bring perfection to you, if that can somehow make you righteous, if the law, sorry, can make you somehow righteous, well, what exactly was the purpose of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ exactly? The Bible says he has done away with the old to make way for the new. Back to our text. Scripture says he ever liveth to make intercession for them. It can be easily presumed within this text that there is something to intercede. I want you to look at something and that is that Jesus Christ makes intercession for us. Romans 11 verse 12 what I want you to notice is that Jesus Christ makes intercession for us. He does not make intercession against us. Do well, you think that there's nobody that actually prays for intercession against? There are. They pray for intercession against a people. You have Elias in Kings, 1 Kings, making intercession against Israel unto the Lord. But here we have Jesus Christ making intercession for us which is incredibly important. Now, to think that there was a, a need for an intercessor. In Exodus, the Bible says, Speak thou unto us, but let not God speak unto us, lest we die. So we have a need for an intercessor even in Exodus at that particular time where they're going up to Moses and they're saying, You speak to God unto us, for God unto us. Now just hold that thought there before you start running away. All right. Job also has this particular picture in mind. Remember in Job 42, we have in Job 42 a need for an intercessor to come to, to come to the Lord on behalf of his friends. You know his friends? Remember his friends? And the Bible says, And Job shall pray for you. We don't live an absolutely perfect life. We're not absolutely perfect ourselves. We are declared perfect, but we still have a tendency to sin. And this is the intercession that Jesus Christ makes for us. He makes a continuous, perpetual intercession for us in order to hold us into that saving faith, in order to bring us to glory. And it is through his intercession in that regard. Christian, if you're considering that your sin is something that is actually going to separate you from God, you are to live by grace. You are to live by faith. How are we to do this? How are we to do this? We have a victory. Something that Frank also mentioned before. The Bible says the just shall live by faith. Remember what I mentioned. If you're looking for... If you're looking for... Um, to be justified, you'll find it at the foot of the cross. Okay? But at this point, we are justified. We are not to look at a blood-soaked cross. We are to not consider our Lord buried still in the grave. We are to recognise that He is risen. He is risen. He is at the right hand of the Father. And He ever liveth to make intercession for us. Why? So we can be saved to the uttermost. 
And we are saved to the uttermost. If you are a Christian, you are saved to the uttermost. But don't stay a babe. Remember when you were born again, you begin as small children again. I remember sharing this on Wednesday night. It's interesting how when you are become a born again Christian, when you, are, when you have humbled yourself to the point... You know, a lot of people, and this, this blows me away... They think humiliating yourself, humbling yourself, is somehow cowardice. For some reason, there's people that are too gutless, and I'm sorry that it's a strong word, but they're too gutless to make the decision for Jesus Christ because they think somehow by humbling yourself, you are making yourself lower and you are not making yourself, well, a man. I was challenged by this before I was a Christian. A man challenged me with this and he said, you, you people up there, you think you're so tough, you think you're so manly, you think you're everything, you think you're so cool, yet you're too gutless to make this walk to realise your own state. We are so proud of ourselves. And unfortunately for many of us, this pride, probably all of us, this pride continues on within our life. Yet there is no man greater, no man stands taller than he which is on his knees. That is a man. You know, I look at a man that's willing to accept responsibility for his actions. I say this to my kids all the time. You do not become a man when you, re- when you reach a certain age. You become a man when you take responsibility for your actions. A man is one that's able to stand up there and say, I was wrong. A man is able to sta- stand there and say, I was deceived. And only a real man and a real woman, people that know themselves, will submit themselves to the foot of the cross and will come down and say, I am nothing of myself. And I need to find the justification at the cross. But brethren and friends, when you're there at the foot of the cross and you've accepted Christ, get up. He ever liveth now to make intercession for you. He's alive and you are alive in him. Death has lost its sting, you know. You've got a victory now that you can live. A victorious life. Now one that leads a victorious life can now share the gospel and share the truth. Oh, but I don't know enough. So you've been saved. You've gone from death to life. Now you can go out and share the truth. Oh, but what if they give me answers? Tell them you're alive. Tell them you're alive. That's unbelievable. The message that we got is greater than everything. But you can't share that message if you're sitting there burdened by your own depravity and sin. This is why we have an intercessor that ever liveth to make intercession for us. This is why we're saved to the uttermost. This is why you can live a life of victory, a life of hope. Please, brethren, please, don't put out this flame by this world. This world is nothing but a bucket of water that wants to put out this flame alive. And some of you are swimming in it, truly swimming in it. And somehow you're thinking that I can ignite a fire in this water. You can't. You can't. 
If you're filling your life with the rubbish of this world, how on earth are you going to be on fire for God? Please explain. Oh, I don't mind. I'll have a little bit of television. Oh, I'll have a little bit of the worldly stuff. Man, if you're enjoying your sport more than you are Jesus Christ, I'm sorry, but there's a problem. There's a problem. If you're enjoying the the entertainment of this world more than you are Jesus Christ, there's a problem. And you will not grow. And you will not share the gospel. You can't. You can't. Because you're still sucked into this idea that the world is somehow going to be your flame. It ain't. It's going to be burned up. This world will be burned up. But he that is willing and able to save to the uttermost remains. And you will be saved. And it will be into the uttermost. The just shall live by faith. I'll close on this. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 55 says, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The just shall live by faith. Quoted mainly from three books. There's a whole bunch that I could have quoted from. But three particularly. Romans, Galatians, Hebrews. And what's interesting about these, and I want you to take some note, if you can turn to Romans chapter 1, please. Romans chapter 1. Verse 17. says, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Friends, turn to Galatians, please. It's after Corinthians, before Ephesians. Too many of these pages. Galatians chapter 3, please. We've just been speaking about the law. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. It is evident. For the just shall live by faith. Probably starting to recognise the theme. Turn back to Hebrews. Still got your finger there. Turn over to chapter 10. And we're looking at verse 38. And this this is only two verses away from the famous faith chapter of Hebrews 11. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. What's interesting about this is the just shall live by faith. I don't know if you noticed that that was sort of a similarity with all of these. They're quoting Habakkuk 2.4. Quoting the book of Habakkuk. What's really fascinating about this is they all have the just shall live by faith. Or our question is, all right, who are the just? 
And we have, unbelievably, the book of Romans happens to deal with who the just are. How shall they live? Well, Galatians seems to give you that really good correction on how you should live. The just shall live. How do they live? Galatians seems to deal with that really well. By faith. Which is the book of the Bible that seems to indicate so much that we are to accept this by faith? It happens to be the book of Hebrews. You can read all of chapter 11. Please don't just stay where I finished at chapter 7. Please go on and read the rest of Hebrews to really get a good grasp of this. And it will be a real pleasure to you. I promise you it will be a joy. Romans chapter 8, please, if we can turn there, our final portion of Scripture. Because this needs to be our continuous idea when you recognise just to hammer home this unbelievable message that it's Jesus Christ that is able to save to the uttermost all them who come unto God by him. Okay? And you are saved to the uttermost. And of course, this is one of my favourite chapters in, in the Bible because it just gives you that real reassurance. Chapter 8, verse 31 I love, I love how Paul does this, you know. I really love it. Because do you ever notice that when he, when he gives you an exposition or when he, when he gives an epistle or a writing in some way, he anticipates the questions? you ever notice that? Like, so, what are you saying? That we can go on in sin and uh, grace might, might abound? He says, no. He recognises that. He recognises that. And he does it wonderfully because he culminates this particular idea that the just shall live by faith that we've just been speaking about, that Christ is able to save to the uttermost. And he, he, he then pronounces it really clearly. Verse 31, he says, What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Yeah, amen, all right. So you reckon you're going to be able to be perfect in your own steam, huh? Ah, oh, You've fallen from grace, my friend. You've fallen from grace. It's only he that is able to save us to the uttermost. So live your life that way, please. For his sake, live your life that way. He's the one that promises full joy. And the full joy only comes when we live our life exactly in the anticipation that we have heaven as our destination. 
And the joy that comes from that will extend to the people around you. Let's pray. Father, the blessings that you provide for us, dear Lord, are overwhelming in many ways. Many of us, dear God, in our own way, dear Lord, see our own depravity and see our own nature at times and we forget to recognise and understand that you are able to save us to the uttermost. Father, I pray for each of the people here, I pray for myself also, that we can remember, dear Lord, that our salvation is secure, not by our own efforts, not by our own will, but from he that died for us, he that paid the ultimate sacrifice. Father, I pray that this will give us a residual for a new life, a life that can be lived in the honour and the glory that there is yet to come for us, given to us by our Lord and Saviour. Father, I pray, dear God, that you would forgive us. Forgive us, dear Lord. Forgive us, Father, for not living our lives in light of this. For being consumed by this world, dear Lord, and being conformed to this world rather than being transformed by the renewing of our mind through the Holy Spirit. I pray, dear God, that you will please open our hearts, open our minds, open our eyes that we may see and live our lives accordingly. And we pray this, dear Lord. We pray this for this church, for this congregation, for each of the members that are here and any that don't know you, dear Lord, that they will seek their justification at the foot of the cross and that they will be brave to take that step. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Saviour, and he that ever liveth to make intercession for us. Amen. Thank you.